Peer pressure can get you to do some pretty dumb things, right? It's because of peer pressure that I ended up in the back of a police car at age 13. Um, I won't tell you the rest of the story today. Um, it's because of peer pressure that I once did the Tough Mudder, which if you remember when that was here several years ago, it was a 12-mile obstacle course named the Tough Mudder because you were muddy the whole time. It was about the worst four hours of my life. I'll never do it again. It's because of peer pressure that I once cut my hair into a mullet. Um, some of you are like, I did that because it was cool. Like, I, I did it much later because it wasn't cool anymore. Um, I asked my Facebook friends this week for some of their stories about, about what they did to get into peer pressure. I, I have a friend who, who got in trouble for stealing hubcaps in his neighborhood because he only got in trouble because someone told him they were worth money, but they're only worth money if you have all four of them. <laughs> and uh, he realized that very quickly. I have one friend who didn't submit this story, but I'm going to tell it on him anyway. And I have a friend who once ate nine Big Macs in one sitting because someone dared him to. I, that's kind of how I feel every time I think about the story, but then I try to think if I could do it. And I just think I need the right amount of peer pressure, and I probably would at least try. Um, uh, so I, I thought about this, and I thought it'd be more fun if we had a little fun together. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you this question. I want you to answer it to your neighbor. Keep in mind, if your neighbor is your parents, you may not want to admit everything right now. Um, that's just a friendly warning from me to you. But I want to ask you this question. What is the goofiest, goofiest thing you've done because of peer pressure? What is the goofiest thing you've done because of peer pressure? Take just 15 seconds and, and ask your neighbor that, share a story. If I see you laughing a lot, you're going to have to answer this question out loud. All right, all right. Does anybody want to share theirs like in three words or less? Anybody? Anybody? Nope. Cool. That works out. Perfect. That's what I expected. Um, so I was thinking about, about peer pressure, and I was thinking about how hard it is when, when other people have expectations of you. I mean, think through, think through the story of the first time you took a drink, if, if, that's, if there's a story there for you. Think of the story of the first puff of smoke you took off a cigarette because it didn't happen alone. I can almost guarantee that it happened with other people around you. My, my friend Tim is a pastor in Cincinnati, and he says this all the time. He says, no one will admit that beer tastes bad. And he says, it's an acquired taste, what is what everyone tells you, but no one will admit that beer tastes bad because everyone takes their first drinks at a party with everyone else watching, and so you can't act as if you don't like it because you have to be cool. And he said, that's the only reason anyone likes beer is because everyone else pressured them into drinking it. Don't comment on whether or not that's true because I don't want to know, but um, I'm just kidding. I don't care. But this is the thing about, about a lot of peer pressure is that for you, a lot of the decisions you've made in your life come from peer pressure. And what happens is now that we're, we're adults, now that we're older, we act like peer pressure isn't the same, but peer pressure is still around you. The decisions you make a lot of times come as a result of pressure. 
Think about, think about how at work you know you need to leave because your kids have a ball game and you can't miss another one for working late, but everybody else is still at the office grinding away. No one says you have to stay, but there's this unspoken pressure where you better work late or you're not contributing to the team like everybody else is. Think about why you signed your kids up for yet another class, for yet another team, for yet another thing. It's not because your kids were dying to do it. It's because your neighbor's kids, your neighbor's kids are outperforming your kids, and you, you can't have that. Think about the decisions you've made. Think about the, the ways that you've gone. And, and here's the thing. You see, peer pressure isn't always a bad thing. Making decisions out of pressure isn't a bad thing. I, I can almost guarantee that at least one of you is here today because someone applied, applied a positive amount of pressure in your life to introduce you to Jesus. Maybe for you, peer pressure was the result of you saying yes to a first date because all of your peers were saying, come on, Whitney, he can't be that bad of a guy, right? Like, maybe that's, that's not even true, but it's funny. Um, but maybe for you, maybe for you, that, that's why you're here. Whenever you find yourself in a, in a, press, in a such situation where people are pressuring you and eventually it devolves into a bad decision, you'll, you'll always find yourself thinking about or being told about the story of, of the frog in the boiling pot of water. Maybe you're familiar with this story. The, the, the story goes that if you put a frog in a boiling pot of water, it'll jump out immediately. But if you put a frog in a, in a pot of room temperature water and then slowly turn the temperature up, the frog's body will adjust to the point where the frog is then boiled to death. And you've heard this story. I remember coming home that afternoon from the cop car situation, and my dad told this story about how the pressure got turned up, and I didn't even realize it. Here's the thing, Dad... That story's not true. Science has proven more than once that if you turn up the pressure on, and if you turn up the temperature on a frog, eventually the frog always jumps out because they, won't be, they don't want to be boiled. So parents, sorry if I ruined that for you, but the frog story isn't true. Here's what is true, though. What is true is that there are thousands, if not millions, of stories of people who made life-changing decisions because of peer pressure. That there are stories in this room of people who made life-altering, life-ruining, life-changing decisions because of peer pressure, and they still carry that, the weight of that today. And this is what happens, is that other people influence you into a way, into a decision, and you start to think, maybe this is my only option, maybe I have to do this. And then inevitably what happens is they'll give in, and everything is different. Maybe for you, though, it's not peers. Maybe the most pressure in your life comes from your spouse. Maybe it comes from your parents. Maybe it comes from your kids who are grown. I don't, I don't know where it comes from for you, but maybe your pressure is a lot different than what you would have imagined. Right? And, and as we close This Is Us and talking about our family, what I want to talk to you about today is talk about the, the influencing spheres of other people and how a lot of times in our family, people push, push and press us into changing how we think and how we feel and how we act because they have an expectation of us that we may not have of ourselves. Right? Think about how you've changed since you've been married or how you've not changed since you've been married. Think about, think about how different your life is. I was thinking about in my house that one of the constant pressure, pressure battles that comes is the battle of how clean the house is. This won't surprise you to know that I am a tad sloppy. 
and my wife is whatever a not tad is of clean. She, the house is always immaculate except for like whatever Ben was last responsible for, right? And so there's this pressure that comes from, from the influence of the, the clean one always winning because that's what's important in life, right? Or if you think about going to the grocery store and who influences whether or not we buy the healthy food or the Reese's chocolate eggs. And there's always this pressure of these two spheres trying to influence each other, but the one who buys the healthy food always ends up winning and there's no Reese's eggs in the house and it's a terrible thing that happens when you give in to pressure. So you need to stand firm in your convictions and make sure that there's chocolate in your house at all times. But here, here's the thing that I, that I think you need to know. What's important is not whether or not you give in. What's important is deciding where you will give in. Because what happens is maybe you're married to somebody who doesn't believe like you believe, somebody who doesn't follow Jesus, somebody who's not a Christian, and, and maybe for you, this is a difficult conversation. Because when you got married 10 years ago, when you got married 40 years ago, you knew they didn't believe and you were hoping maybe you could change them and, and they've never given in. And, and now what's happening is they start applying this pressure of every Sunday you're gone. You ruin half our weekend by being at church for the whole day. And every Sunday you're, you're gone. Every, you know, this isn't, this isn't that important to me. Why does it have to be that important to you? And, and it starts to wear and it starts to, to, to take time. And all of a sudden you find yourself thinking, you know what, maybe they're right. Maybe it's not that big a deal that I go. Maybe it's not that big a deal that I believe. Or maybe you found Jesus later in life and you guys got married and neither of you cared about, about church, but then you found yourself in a church and you met Jesus and you're like, this is, this is everything, but your, your spouse still isn't interested. Or maybe your kids are grown after you found Jesus. Or maybe your kids walked away from the faith you thought you were instilling in them. I don't know what it looks like for you, but what I know is that for you, if there is part of your family who doesn't believe, then you have to make a decision on where I'm going to draw the line on compromise. Say, I'll eat differently, I'll clean differently, I'll, 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 I'll plan my weeks differently, but I will not compromise on believing in Jesus. Because what happens is that pressure will continue to mount until you either stand or change. And today we're going to talk in the Bible about a family that's one of the most messed up families in the Bible. And let me tell you, if you've read the Bible or you've been here for the last four weeks, you know that calling a family one of the most messed up families in the Bible is saying something. But this family, it's in the book of 1 Kings. If you want to open your Bible there or you want to, you want to get out your phone and go there, this family is led by a guy named Solomon. And Solomon is the son of David. David, the one who killed Goliath. David becomes king. His son Solomon becomes king. And God comes to Solomon one day and he says, listen, you can have anything you want. Anything in the whole world is yours. What do you want? And Solomon doesn't ask for money. He doesn't ask for a whole much more power. He asks God for wisdom. And he says, God, I want you to make me wiser than anyone who's ever lived. And so the people who believe the Bible, us, we say that Solomon was the wisest man of all time. And there are records to indicate that he also was probably the richest man of all time because he used that wisdom in the ways that, that made him rich. And he used the wisdom in the ways that made him powerful. But here's the thing about even the smartest person you know. Sometimes the smartest people you know don't always use their brain. And Solomon is one of those people who was incredibly smart, but didn't always make the best choice. 
And so I want to give you this warning before we, get, before we get into 1 Kings. That just because the Bible describes something does not mean the Bible prescribes it. Just because the Bible describes it doesn't mean the Bible prescribes it. Because there are times and events and stories in the Bible where something will happen and you'll think, that, what, huh? And this is one of those things. Solomon makes some choices and Solomon does some things that in no way is the Bible endorsing. And this is true throughout a lot of the Old Testament, throughout parts of, parts of the New Testament, where there are stories of things that happen and the Bible is telling you it happened not because it expects you to do those things, but because it, it's telling you these things and the authors of the Bible are writing this to say, don't do this. And this is the case for Solomon. And so it starts with Solomon picking his first wife. It's never good when you call someone your first wife, is it? But Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. He brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace in the temple of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. So Solomon makes his decision on his first wife by finding one of the most powerful leaders in the world and marrying her. But Solomon never stopped to ask some, ask some important questions. Some questions like, does she believe what I believe? Because she doesn't. The Egyptians were what we call pagans. They had hundreds of different gods that they would worship and bow to and celebrate. Did he ask, is she willing to follow the God that I follow, the God of Israel, the one true God, the one that we believe in today? He didn't ask this question. And he marries her only for the purpose of strategy, only for the purpose of, of love, whatever it was. And, and, and what happens is that Solomon makes this one choice in marrying Pharaoh's daughter that leads to this downhill snowball effect that you won't believe. And here's, here's the thing. Like, I, I get nervous when we talk about things that I know people in the room are going to be affected by. And what happens is like, you know, if, if it's true for you, you think it's only true for you, but you're not alone. And I want you to know that, that what I say today, I, I say with a full heart of hoping to help you. Because I know that there are people in this room whose spouse doesn't believe. There are people in this room whose kids, whose parents, whose cousins, whose aunts, whose nephews, whose uncles don't believe. And so I, I say this to say, please, please do not compromise in the area of your beliefs. Do not be willing to give up the faith that you have in the God, the creator of the universe. And I say this to challenge you and to, and to hope that you will see that you can lead and influence your family. That you don't have to compromise here. I say this to those of you who are single and who are dating I say this because I want you to know that it's important that the person that you are dating holds fast to the same priorities that you do. If they don't believe, if they don't think, if they don't have the same philosophies as you, then you probably don't need to be dating them. You can, but I want to challenge you that you're not, not, not the one who gives up and compromises in the area of your faith. I'm going to tell you the story of a guy named, named Charles. We call him Chap, but Charles was his real name. And Chap met a girl he thought was good-looking. The year was about 1936 or so, and he wanted to ask her on a date, but she made one thing clear. 
He said, I don't, I don't date men who don't believe. And so the next week, Chap showed up to her church, and he showed up to her church until she went on a date with her, until she went on a date with him. And then they continued going on dates until they got married, and eventually the faith that she had, the one that she wouldn't bend on, became the faith that was his. And Chap and Catherine had six kids, two of whom went on to become influential preachers, two of whom married preachers and who continue to preach this day. And she went, they went on then to have 17 grandchildren, five of whom are standing on a stage just like this one today. 15, if not 16 of those, if they're not standing on a stage like this preaching today, 16 of their grandchildren are sitting in pews just like this one today because their faith is a priority in their life. Chap and Catherine have something in the neighborhood of 40 great-grandchildren, and I would venture to guess that about 38 of them are following Jesus in a church building at this very moment because Chap and Catherine, my grandmother and grandfather, made it a priority. And Chap made it a priority because Catherine said, you can date me when you follow Jesus. And I tell you that story to tell you that Chap came to church to go on a date. So if you're single, this might be a good strategy for you. <laughs> I, I, I'm kidding. But Chap came to church because Catherine would not compromise. And I want to challenge you to have that same conviction that my grandmother did. And to say, you know what, I'm willing, I'm willing to give in some areas, I'm willing to oversee some, some things, but I'm not willing to compromise my faith. And if you want to be a part of my life, this has to be a part of yours. You see, I, I remember, when every time we think about this, I think about in the, in the New Testament, there's a verse where the Apostle Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, Paul says, do not be unequally yoked with your partner. And what Paul's saying is he's saying it is wise, it is a good decision, it is the best decision to marry someone who believes what you believe. But I want to be clear that Paul doesn't say that the unpardonable sin is marrying someone who doesn't believe. Paul doesn't say if your husband, if your wife, if your kids don't believe in Jesus, then you're going to hell. It's a advice and it's wisdom, but it's very important wisdom. Perhaps it's easiest to understand this wisdom if I take you back to driver's ed. My whole family, all three of my brothers and sisters and I, had the same driver's ed teacher, and I think the entire time he was 88 years old. I don't know how he did it, but he never aged past 88, and he never changed his material. And one of his favorite things to do is he'd hold up a sign of one of those yellow curve signs with the speed limit at the bottom. And he'd say, did you know that a yellow speed limit sign is not the law? And he'd chuckle because he knew what he was going to say next. And he'd say, did you know? You can come up to a curve in a 55-mile-an-hour zone, and you can take that curve at 55 miles an hour, and I, I can't do his voice the whole time because it'll hurt, and he say, you can take that curve at 55 miles an hour, you can slide off the road, fall down the embankment, flip your car three times, let the police and the ambulance come, let the ambulance pull you out with the jaws of life, and while the ambulance is pulling you out, he said, you can look that cop in the eye and say, I didn't speed, I was going 55 the whole time. And he said, this is the thing about a warning. He said, the warning and the wisdom is to say, listen, you can go 55 if you want, but your life is going to be much better if you take this curve at 25. 
And this is why what we're saying today is that you don't have to marry someone who believes. You don't have to, to tell your spouse, look, either, either you believe or you're out. But what you have to do is consider the wisdom and carry on your convictions. This is something that Solomon misses. And Solomon misses this big time. Look at this. Look at in, in chapter 3, verse 3. This is how the bio, this is how the writer of 1 Kings describes Solomon. It says, Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given him by his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. Right? This is where the story of Solomon is going. Solomon is well thought of. God is pleased with Solomon. Solomon's making good decisions, but Solomon married Pharaoh's daughter. And in this one little spot, in this one seemingly eh, insignificant decision, everything changes. Fast forward through chapter 3 to chapter 11, and here comes the new story of Solomon. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. And so Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely, as David his father had done. And so there comes this moment when Solomon's life goes from the faithful guy who does what God has asked to the guy whose heart has turned away. Whenever I think of the story of Solomon, my mind goes to, to my sophomore year in Bible college. I had this professor who was, who, was, who was a little bit older and distinguished and wore a suit and tie every day, and he rarely cracked jokes. So when I was awake in class, it was a hope that he would. I'm kidding, I didn't sleep that much. But... Um, so he's telling the story of Solomon. And while he's telling the story of Solomon, he gets to this part of the story where Solomon has 700 wives and 300 concubines, 300 prostitutes who live in his home. And this professor gets this little wry grin on his face because he's about to tell his only joke. And he says, you know, I have one wife in my house and I have a hard time keeping her happy. I can't imagine having a thousand ladies in my home and trying to keep all of them happy. And this boy from West Virginia speaks up in the back, and I'll never forget this moment as long as I live. And he says, boy, <laughs> I'd sure like to try. <laughs> and they were on two very different planes with this conversation. But I, I've never let that moment leave because, because it's such an important realization into the convictions of Solomon. That Solomon, in order to appease his first wife, maybe he let the Egyptian gods, you know, maybe they were just hung up on the wall and he thought, you know what, there's nothing. 
It doesn't mean anything. We'll just, we'll just have their picture there. You know, it's not a big deal. But then the second wife comes, and the second wife comes because Solomon sees the strategy of having, being married into powerful families, and the third wife, and the fourth wife, and the fifth wife. And every time he's like, yeah, you can bring a little bit of your stuff, but I, I follow the Israelite. Well, that God promises that, doesn't he? And this, this deviation just started just by a little bit. And by the time things get out of hand, Solomon turns around and realizes, I've completely turned my back on the Israelite God, the one true God, the God who gave me this power, the God who gave me this wisdom. And here's what I want you to know. I know that your husband, that your wife, I know that your children, that your parents, I know that your, your family, your friends, your coworkers might not believe like you believe. I know that. But here's what I want you to know about the most important people in your life. Don't leave them because they don't follow Jesus. Lead them to Jesus. Don't walk out and say, I can't have anything to do with you anymore because you won't follow Jesus. Don't say, you know what, if you don't believe, I'm not coming to your parties anymore. Don't say anything like that. Tell those people, listen, I will not be influenced by your lack of belief, but I will do everything it takes to influence you with my belief. Don't lead them because they don't follow Jesus. Lead them to Jesus. This is what matters. This is the priority. This is the thing I will not change. Every year we have graduation Sunday and we honor the high school graduates who, who are going on to college. And every year that I have been in charge of graduation Sunday since I turned 22 and, and, was, a, and was in ministry, I've said the thing that I heard when I was in camp at age 13. And I look at those graduates who are going off to college and who are going off to be on their own, and I tell them there's a difference between a thermometer and a thermostat. The thermostat walks into a room and and sets the temperature of the room. The thermostat is the one who, who influences the rest of the room. The thermometer is the one who changes depending on what the thermostat says. And so this is my challenge to you who have people in your life who don't believe. Do not be the thermostat, the one that varies, the one that fluctuates depending on what else is going on. Be the therm... Be the therm... (laughs) Do not be the thermometer. Be the thermostat. Set the temperature of the room. Don't allow the people around you to influence what is a priority for you. This is what Solomon did. Solomon's story doesn't end all that well until you get to the very end of his life and he writes this book called Ecclesiastes where he realizes that he screwed up majorly and all of his life is a wreck and his children are a wreck and his family's a wreck and he's like, what have I done? So don't be Solomon. Be like Eunice. And Eunice might not have made the best choice picking her husband, but she loved him faithfully anyway. And Eunice knew that her husband was, was different, that he didn't believe in, in the God that she believed in, but she loved him. And Eunice stood faithfully by her husband, and Eunice and her husband had a son. 
And Eunice knew from the moment her son was born, it doesn't matter what my husband says, it doesn't matter what my husband does, I will be the one who influences this child, and my child will follow the one true God, the one who sent Jesus, the one who, who saved me. She said, I'll do everything I can to influence my husband, but I will not let my husband in the area of what our faith influence my son. And you can imagine how hard that would be. Maybe some of you have lived the same life that Eunice lived where you married into someone who didn't think the same way about their faith that you do and you battled and you fought and the kids, you had to drag them to church and like, why doesn't dad have to come to church? It doesn't matter. We're going to church because we believe and we're going we're gonna to believe and we pray that someday dad will and your kids started to fall and they started and you brought them back and you know the battles that Eunice had to have fought all of those years of dragging her son to church, of dragging him and saying you will believe and you will see and trying her hardest to make a priority in her son's life, something that did not matter in his dad's. Well, the day came when Eunice's son was grown. And Eunice's son was a man named Timothy. And Timothy, like his mom Eunice, and like his grandmother Lois, believed in Jesus. And Timothy ends up as the right-hand man of a guy named Paul. That same guy named Paul who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, that same guy named Paul who, aside from Jesus, is considered the most influential Christian leader of all times, he chose Timothy as his number two. Timothy as the guy to go with him on journeys throughout the known world, planting churches and teaching people about Jesus. Timothy, the one whose dad never believed. In fact, Towards the end of Paul's life, as he's passing the baton to Timothy, he writes these two letters to Timothy that we have in our Bible, First and Second Timothy. And at the beginning of the second letter, he says this, he says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, which lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. I am persuaded it now lives in you also. Because Eunice knew that she would hold to one thing. She said, my husband can think differently, he can behave differently, he can believe differently. But she said, there will never be anything more important in the life of Eunice and in the life of my son Timothy than Jesus. And she refused to give that it didn't matter what else happened. It didn't matter what he said. It didn't matter his criticism. It didn't matter his, his cynicism. All that mattered was that her son would be raised to follow Jesus. And so here's what I want to ask you today. If you have to compromise in some areas of your relationships, will you commit to saying, I will never compromise my faith? I will never let someone else define what I believe. Because here's, here's the story for you. The story for you is that it will get difficult at times, that it will become impossible at times. But there is a God who remains faithfully devoted to us, and it's our job, in spite of opposition, to remain faithfully devoted to him. And so here's what I want to challenge you to do. I want to challenge you because there's two kinds of people in this room. 
The first is the kind of person who hears this sermon who immediately thinks of the person in their life that has tried to, to wear down their faith, that has tried to in either outspokenly or just kind of quietly pressure their faith away. I want to challenge you to look back at that person and say, you know what, I'm going to love you so much and I'm going to sacrifice so much that eventually you will be the one who sees this faith. I want you, if you're that kind of person, to, to when, the, when the bread comes and the cup comes, to hold those and remind yourself that this is the story of Jesus' body broken for you and his blood poured out for you. And that no one else will love you to the point that Jesus loved you, where he gave his life up for you. Then there's the second person, kind of person who's in this room today, and I want to talk to you. You're here because the person you love has so lovingly and kindly, sometimes not perfectly, loved you enough to share Jesus with you. And you're not sure you buy into this thing yet. I just want to tell you straight up that the reason they never gave up on you, the reason that they continue to invite you, the reason that they continue to share with you is because we believe that God, the creator of the universe, sent his only son to earth so that he could live a life that where there was no wrong, where there was no sin, where there was no brokenness, and still choose to go to the cross and die a painful death where his body is broken and his blood is poured out for you and for me so that we could know the hope of eternity in heaven. And so as the trays pass, if you're willing, I encourage you to take the piece of bread and take the cup. If you're not ready with, for that, that's fine with me. But I want you to take these moments and to think about Jesus. And to think about maybe for the first time in your life making a commitment to Jesus and what that might look like. When we dismiss the service, I'll be in the lobby and, I, and I'd love to chance to talk with you about giving your life to him. But over the next minute as the trays are passed, I want to challenge you, just spend that time focused on Jesus.